Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers and 24 offices across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me interview a different Foley attorney through our one-on-one, candid conversations, you'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bio, stories of obstacles and triumphs, with some funny moments in between. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. Today, I'm speaking with Marcella Jane. Marcella is a litigation associate in Foley's New York office. Going into our discussion, I knew that she had managed to navigate and excel at Fordham Law School as a single mother to two young children. But I had no idea just how long and winding and just difficult her path to law school and to Foley truly was. The story you're about to hear is really the story of how Marcella pulled herself out of poverty. The bulk of our discussion focuses on about a 10-year period in which Marcella dropped out of high school got her GED, eventually returned to community college and was exposed to a lawyer. And how as a single mother working as a cook in restaurants, she was eventually able to go from public housing project to Foley and Lardner. As you listen to this conversation, you will be struck by Marcella's determination and self-awareness. She shares some incredibly profound observations and insights that I hope resonate with you as much as they did with me. It's truly an honor to be able to share Marcella's story, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Marcella. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right. I'm going to have you start the way I have everybody else start. Can you please give me, slash our listeners, that, I don't know, 30 to 90 second intro you do when you are at a networking event or maybe you're on a panel and you get that tell me about yourself question? I'm a second-year litigation associate at Foley and Lardner. I went to Fordham Law School, and before that, I went to Mount Holyoke College for undergrad. I majored in politics. I was very, very motivated to be a public interest attorney, and even so in law school, I was a president of the Public Interest Association, which was called the Stein Scholars there. And I ended up at Foley and Lardner, but public interest is still near and dear to me. And you gleefully ended up at Foley and Lardner. <laughs> gleefully, without apology, without a single apology to anyone about it. And that's where I am. I enjoy being a litigator. Well, as you may or may not know, I'm so excited to have you on this podcast because I think, well, like so many others, but you also have a really unique, I think, an interesting story in terms of your path to law school and your path to Foley. But before we get there, let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? Where were you raised? Well, I think even this is, this could be a boring question and a boring answer, but for me, it's actually... For me, that sounds really arrogant, <laughs> but I think it's, it's, it's interesting because people don't really have the patience for a nuanced, complex story or narrative, I find. I'm excited for this, and we have the time and the patience right now. Let's do it. We do. We do. So people want something easy to digest. You're from a poor community. You're from a wealthy community. You're this or you're that. And my 
story and where I'm from is complicated and it informs who I am as a person. Because I grew up in Amherst, Massachusetts till about the age of 17, pretty much. And Amherst is, you know, it's like where I'm staying now in South Orange, uh, New Jersey. It's a fairly affluent college town. It's very intellectual. Mm -hmm. It's in many ways a great place to grow up. Even though it's a small town, it has that because of the influx of students, there's so much cross-pollination of ideas and thoughts, and it's very intellectually stimulating. There's lots of old bookstores, which I love and could pretty much waste the day noodling around in. But then when I was 17, I moved to another area of Massachusetts, which is geographically really close, and that's about it. It's literally a different world. And it's sort of like, well, I guess a lot of places throughout the country have these neighborhoods or these cities and towns that are so close to each other, but are just stratified so differently. Absolutely. And the way that informs the people who grow up in one of these communities and never go to the other one have a very singular view of the world. And I live for maybe 10 years Leading up to law school, I lived in Holyoke, Massachusetts, which is a very economically depressed city. And I'm assuming it's only within a couple of miles, perhaps, of Amherst? Yeah. They're very close geographically. Mount Holyoke College, where I went, is smack dab in the middle. And that's in a town which borders Holyoke. And actually, on our, I think it was on Mount Holyoke's website for visiting families that give you directions on how to drive to Mount Holyoke. And the quickest way to drive off if you're coming up from New York is to go through Holyoke. And I looked at the directions once and they actually have you go avoid it. They have you drive past Holyoke and then you get off in Northampton and then backtrack up. Turn around just to avoid the area. So you don't have to drive through Holyoke. And I had a friend in college. And she actually, her dad just plugged the address in his GPS. And he said, you can't go to Mount Holyoke. After he drove through downtown Holyoke, he said, you can't go here because it's too crime ridden. It's too unsafe. He drove through the downtown. It was like five o'clock. Every business is closed. Mm -hmm. There's just people loitering. There's garbage everywhere. Or I don't know what, maybe today it's a little bit better, but, and he said, you can't go there. And then I said, well, that's why the website directs parents to drive around it. Avoids it, yes. Well, and what precipitated or what caused your move? But then also I'm curious if you could reflect on what you learned having spent 17 years and like you said, a starkly different place that was only miles away from Mount Holyoke. I think, well, the reason I moved is despite growing up in Amherst, which is fairly affluent, we lived in public housing in Amherst. So mostly public housing. So I had a single mother. She had four kids. My mother did union organizing, but she did not make enough money to really live in Amherst. The idea is that, and there are a lot of families like ours in Amherst where they would, people would go on housing lotteries forever and just wait to get into the town in hopes that they could get their kids into the school system. Even if you're paying 90% of your income toward rent and you're really living lean, the idea is that if you get your kids into the school system, you're going to give them a tremendous opportunity. So that's kind of when we first moved to Amherst, we lived in a, a really rural, poor, more like white town in Western Mass. And then we moved to Amherst at first paying like almost all of our income toward rent and then living in public housing. So when I 
started working when I was 17. I dropped out of high school. I had a GED. I was working in restaurants. And it gets to a point where I know I can't afford to live in Amherst. Right. You can't work in restaurants and make minimum wage and live in this town. So where can you live? You can live in Holyoke. You, I mean, my first apartment there, and I had a roommate. You won't believe this, but my, <laughs> it was four seventy-five a month. That was the, yeah, and you're like, and we needed to split it because that was a lot of money. <laughs> and we and we split it. I mean, it's like yeah. You know, now I'm like, oh my god, I blow that much on Amazon without even knowing what I bought. Right. <laughs> like, my husband even, would tell you about me. <laughs> I, yeah. I disagree with yes. You stated it. But just to make sure people heard, you mentioned that you, so you, you dropped out of high school and you got your GED and you started full-time waitressing. No, I'm not waitressing, I'm cooking, but yeah. Cooking. Yeah, I worked in restaurants. And so in, in Amherst High School, there was a program where you could go to community college for the last two years of high school. And I wanted to do that program, but I was a very defiant student and I often skipped school. And so I went to the guidance counselor, whoever, and I was like, listen, I want to do this program. And they were like, you are absolutely not a candidate for this. So I just kind of turned up my nose and was like, fine, I'm dropping out. I'll just, out of here. You know, I'll just get a GED and I can go to community college with a GED. I don't need to be in your stupid program. So that was like... And then were your sights set on like the culinary? No, I at that point. Okay, it's just a way to make a living, right? Got it. Like that's the jobs cater to the college population. So it's, it's basically true. It's true. a service industry driven economy that all revolves around the colleges. And that's one of the reasons I go back now. I'm like, it's so beautiful here, and my kids are like, could we live here? I'm like, no. I mean, where would I work? There's nothing to do. Right, because it's I about need the industry. Yeah. And the only reason I know that I even know Amherst is because of the schools. I don't mm-hmm. think I would know the name for any other reason. It's a great place to visit, I think. Yeah. And and also a great place to go to college, but to live full time, yeah, I think that's a lot harder. And you mentioned there's this 10-year period between I guess around the ages of 17 between that and law school. Yeah. So, can you tell me about those 10 years what you did in that 10-year period? Yeah. And I mean, there's definitely, I think that's like the darkest point of my life in many ways, but also I think I experienced the most growth from that period in my life. Yeah. Those two things usually go together. Difficulty and growth. Yeah, they do. So moving to Holyoke introduced me to, I guess, poverty and disparity in a way I did not understand before. I thought I did because I grew up poor, like we were very poor, but we lived in an affluent neighborhood. But in that type of poverty, I mean, everyone in my family can read and write. There's no Mm -hmm. one in my family that can't read or write. It doesn't matter how poor you are. We we can all read and write. It doesn't matter if, you know, I had a GED, but I could read and write. I could read at a college level. I read, I grew up in a house with books. I had a very different upbringing than the people, than my neighbors when I moved to Holyoke. And a lot of the little kids in the neighborhood would like come over to our apartment a lot of the time. And we got to see the world through their eyes. And it it was such a different world. It was also a very violent place in a way that I had not seen, ever seen violence before. And 
the desperation was so different. There were families where what would happen, a lot of people, a lot of friends and people I knew weren't really literate in English, but they weren't really literate in Spanish because you learn one language and then you come here, you don't get any further education in Spanish and you never really get caught up with English. So you can kind of speak and read a little bit of both to get by, but you're not really fluent. (laughs) There's so many moments I, I can remember, but there was just getting the apartment and the landlord, my friend and I were like, oh, you know, we're young, we're single, we're like cowboys. Like we'll go anywhere, right? We're just trying to get somewhere cheap. We don't care, right? Right, the wild, wild west, let's figure it out. Yeah, and my best friend and I, we both had like, you know, that part of your brain that eventually develops where you do risk analysis as an adult. Yep, but that takes until you're about 25. Yeah, so- So that's some time between 17 and 25. It was very, very underdeveloped. I was like, intellectually, I could assess risk, but it just never factored into a decision. So we didn't care where we were like, all right, great. We got this apartment we can afford. And the apartment wasn't bad in and of itself. And we were asking the landlord, what's the hardest part about being a landlord in Holyoke? And he said, oh, definitely cleaning up after the murders. Oh my gosh. I did not expect you to say that. Yeah, you said that. Okay. We were like, um, but none in our building. And he said, well, what, what building are you guys going into? And we we're like Mosher and center, the yellow brick building in Mosher and center. And he said, Oh yeah, definitely. I've done that there. And we were just like, you know, that was sort of like normal. There were times I walked up that hallway and there was just blood just sticking on the floor. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And I remember one time it getting on, like I had white tennis shoes and like wiping the shoes off because there was blood sticking to the bottom. It was such a different world. And I saw poverty in a way I did not know it or understand it. I saw it in a way where it affected the ability of people to engage with the court system. Absolutely. The education system to be completely stifled because the poverty I knew was different. Like my parents were poor, but they, they could read and write. And my mother was a union organizer. So she knew how to navigate things in a way. And, and she could figure out resources for certain things. That's very different. So I had never had necessarily long-term exposure to that level of poverty. But when I was in college, I went to American University in DC for undergrad. And I was an investigative intern for the public defender service there. Oh, wow. So they, I mean, they literally have college students doing the investigation for their criminal defense work, which at the time felt super normal, but in retrospect, it's not. And so that would send me to parts of DC to talk to the complaining witness who frequently would give the statement. And, you know, as you know, like Washington, DC and many big cities, they definitely have areas with just extreme poverty. And it made it very clear to me that I did not know this world And for me to judge that world by whatever my standards, by whatever I saw in the news, by whatever I had read, was wildly unacceptable and not okay. And so for me, it was like, you know, afternoons, two days a week for about a year. That gave me some exposure, probably still not at the level of which, you know, you're talking about. But it definitely was a part of society that, you know, I had up until that point really been privileged to not have as a part of my day-to-day. Yeah, I mean, it is 
this heaviness, this sinking heaviness and this sense of doom that, you know, it's like once you learn it, you can't ever really. The getting out of it is, right. it becomes, we can have these theoretical conversations, but when you, like you said, you're walking upstairs and there's blood in the hallway and, you know, you're, you know, people who like, they can't functionally really read or write well in either language. It's a very long, long road. Although I'm going to push forward a little because but I would do two and a half hour podcasts if I could. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. Because there's still a lot to talk about here. But yeah, I know when we talked in the past, you had mentioned for a lot of that time, you'd worked in restaurants. Yes. And I'm curious as to when the seed, and I realized, for, I realized a number of other intervening things happened in life as well. Yes. So as much as you'd like to elaborate on, but I'm curious about kind of what you were doing when the seed of law school was planted, but also what happened in life. Between oh, yeah. then and going to law school. Well, when I was in community college, and I took me a, like six years to get like a two-year degree, because it's like you work and you go to school and you work, you know, then you stop going to school for a while and focus on work and whatever. But I took a civil liberties class and the professor was a lawyer. And that's sort of, in a way, all it really takes. I mean, I didn't know any lawyers growing up. And this guy had the right values and the right motivations. And he was representing Guantanamo Bay detainees. And he was teaching this class at community college. Can you imagine? You know, it's like an act of charity or whatever. But he was a well-established attorney and he was doing these huge civil rights cases and getting people out of Guantanamo. And, and I thought like, it's almost like, voodoo or magic, what you could do with a law degree. That's what I saw. And also being around that extreme poverty, that juxtaposition. You see, people's lives are turned upside down and sideways because of pieces of paper and because of writing and language. Right. That they can't interpret and they don't know how to navigate. And I love what you said. It was like magic or voodoo being able, if you could understand and navigate these laws. You basically have a superpower. Yeah, that's so powerful what you just said. That's really, really powerful. <laughs> so that's when I started to get that idea because also, well, I also wanted to make money because I didn't want to be poor and I didn't want to work in restaurants. And and it's funny now because I think, you know, my billing rate's higher than his. But when he was teaching our class, he said something about, I charge $300 an hour. <laughs> and I was like, whoa. At the time, you're right. You're probably like, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, so he can get, people are being tortured. They're being tortured and imprisoned. And, you know, also it was significant because part of my family is Syrian too. So after 9-11, there was a lot of anti-Arabic sentiment going on. So that sort of resonated with me. And then seeing that he was getting people out through work right. and making money. He was making, and for me, it was never about being rich or anything, but right. like he's making enough money to dress well. And to champion these causes. So that, right. that penetrated, that resonated with you. Absolutely. But the road there was still complicated. And in between this period, I was in a very, like, very abusive relationship. And I ended up having to go to a women's shelter. And at that point, I was pregnant with my first daughter. And... I had about half, I mean, I don't know how many, I had like credits at community college, mm -hmm. but I didn't have anything else. It was like, I had that and I was in this shelter and 
I knew then something then I knew exactly then I was going to be a lawyer and I made that decision and I didn't even know what the LSAT was and I didn't even know anything about bar exams or, you know, U.S. news rankings or I just didn't know anything about any of that. But I knew I was going to be a lawyer and I didn't tell anyone because I thought they were, you know. Right. They would see like, oh, are you really? How are you going to do that? Yeah. Good luck with that. Right. So how are you going to do it? It's you're just going to do one step after the other and know that I know my path. You don't need to know it. And, and I'm going to get there. And all during this time, I was in this shelter, putting in housing applications every day, like no income, very pregnant, about to have this kid. And we got a unit in this public housing project that was like, when they showed me the address, like, you got to be kidding me. (laughs) I know that place. I'm not living there. (laughs) But, you know, you're like, well, what am I going to do? I can't, I have no other assets. I, there's no no one's going to rescue me. Like no one's going to come and rescue me. Sorry, what you just said, no one's going to come and rescue me is such an important thing to learn in life. And I know it's really easy just, but when you have that fundamental understanding that at the end of the day, no one, right? Like, you know, and hopefully people do assist. And I know later on, there's some people who definitely supported you in getting you to law school. Absolutely. But to, to understand that, like, this is me right now. It's, it's freeing. And, and I think about this sometimes when I'm having a hard time, but when I'm alone, I'm with someone I perfectly trust. I'm with someone who's never let me down. Oh my gosh. Yes. Oh God, you're killing me with the, but your words are just like, so that's right. That's absolutely right. And I know for some people, the no one's going to rescue me can be depressing, but like you said, it's powerful. It's actually empowering to get, to not go too far off into the, like, I don't know if it's life coaching sort of thing, but the relationship with the self and to deeply trust yourself and to be with yourself when there's no one else to be with is just a, that's everything. So yes. It is everything. And and so that's what I said. It's the most painful period, but also the most growth. So I'm just going to, I'm going to live in these crazy projects that are run down. They're the oldest standing projects in the U.S. Wow. They were slated for demolition a decade ago, but they're still standing. Raise a baby. You're going to have a baby. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to go back to community college. I'm going to finish all of my credits and also, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm also going to graduate at, you know, close to the top of my class as possible. Mm-hmm. And I also don't know how I'm going to do it. But at that time, too, I started to say, I'm going to go to Mount Holyoke. And I don't know how I'm going to get in and I'm going to get a scholarship. And that was sort of like my plan. And it did work, but it it's not like it worked seamlessly. Like it was painful. And over many, many years, as you've been saying. Right. So it it was just like, you just, you have those blinders on that horses have where it's like, you're just looking ahead and things are, there's setbacks, there's complications. And one of them in Holyoke, which is absolutely crazy. When I talk about the level of poverty that I saw there is like landlords are not required to furnish fridges, refrigerators in the apartments. Yeah. So imagine you're moving into public housing because you're there's no refrigerator. And you're escaping domestic violence and you don't have a refrigerator. Now you've been referred to a caseworker because of the domestic violence. So the caseworker is like, if you don't get a refrigerator, you know, I'm going to file a neglect report. Right. Because you can't live here without. Right. Right.
and you don't have money to buy a refrigerator. So you have to like think, how do I get, how am I going to get a refrigerator? Right. And so those years is like, every day is like pivoting 16 ways, like seeing a spider web, every decision you make, how is this going to play out? How am I going to get around this and that? How am I going to get a refrigerator? If you don't have a bed, I might file. I might have right. to file. How am I going to get a bed? Are you going to get a bed? How are you going to get childcare to go back to school? You have to be enrolled full time. And then the childcare only covers the time of the class. So you're going to have to do your schoolwork with the kid. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was like just constant onslaught of logistical challenge. Right. Over and over and over for years and years. Right. And interfacing with bureaucracies who, frankly, I mean, this is the perspective that I think I have that I'm grateful for is like, I know the level of competency and strategy it takes for women just to survive like this. So Mm -hmm. if, if that could be acknowledged and valued a little bit more in our culture, the women like these should be running companies, right? Because the level of executive function you need, and there are people who did do it better than me and and are still doing it better Mm -hmm. than me. So I know that they are out there and I hope someday I'm in a position. All of that though. Well, like the grit, the savvy, the perseverance, the keep listing all the attributes it takes to navigate any of that. You're absolutely, absolutely right. And we don't have a way to assess that, capture that, to even recognize or notice it, frankly. And by the way, like what you said about the refrigerator, that's not something that's occurred to me because most, you know, most people, like you said, when you're not in public housing above a certain place in society, if you rent a place, it comes with a refrigerator. (laughs) That's the expectation. Yeah. I'm just, yeah, yeah. no, I mean, these are the little things. And then imagine this, I'm still living in these public housing projects. By the way, there's this whole other backstory that while I'm living there, they're trying to demolish the projects. So then I got involved politically and now they've actually revitalized them. So when I go back there, I see Lyman Terrace housing projects, which were going to be demolished and everyone was going to be displaced. And there was a professor in undergrad who helped me basically wage this war to keep this neighborhood intact. But while I'm in college, while I'm waging this war to, to protect our, our housing, to protect this community, I'm in these classes, politics classes, urban development, politics of poverty, Marx and Marxism, you know, all this stuff. And my classmates are like, well, you know, there are daycare vouchers, so I don't understand why that's a problem. And, or there is public housing or there is section. And I'm like, okay, did you know the wait list for section eight is 10 years? Right. Back to what you said. Did you know that daycare only covers the time in school? So if you plan to study, you're doing it with a child on your lap. Right. So they, well-meaning my peers, but the disconnect. Exactly. And the challenge for me is, and what I'm grateful for that experience is that I had to like cut out my emotion and just bring facts. I'm grateful for that. I had a classmate who was a non-traditional student and she was from Fall River, which is a pretty economically depressed town in Massachusetts. She was older. And she said to me after class one time, and it was our politics of poverty class where our well-meaning classmates would say these things, which just show that They weren't malicious, but they were just ignorant of these actual struggles. And she would say, I don't know how you keep your composure. Like, I don't know how you don't Mm -hmm. lose it. And you just say the truth of the fact, but you don't make it like I never said as a right 
And to get, I mean, emotional, because it's personal. It's how, She's like, why aren't you getting emotional about it? I mean, imagine waking up in this neighborhood where the walls are sweating with your speckled linoleum floor that hasn't been updated in 50 years with the freezing because the wind is blowing through the cracks in the door, working as hard as possible, and then have someone saying to you, it's easy. I mean, it's like turns your blood into lava. Go get the voucher and you can be here with me right now. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. Oh, my gosh. Well, there there is some level of back to the things you learned and the way you had to push yourself, the composure you had to gain. I don't know. I guess it's compartmentalizing at some extent because you're like, I'm also focused on my goal here. Right. And I don't, I don't have the energy even to give yeah. you in this right now. That's a weird blessing, right? To be so exhausted in one way that you're like, whatever. I can't, I can't, I, I need can't. this energy. <laughs> but like you said, it took some time to finish six years to finish college. And I, I know when we talked in the past, you mentioned there's also a bit of a gap between finishing that and even kind of starting that application process. Yeah. To law school. So what happened next? Well, I had another partner. We had another kid and we were going to move to New York or wherever I ended up going to law school together. And that was going to be the plan. And then we broke up and then suddenly it was a daunting and horrifying prospect of being a single parent again now with two kids three and six or at the time two and five how on earth can you possibly relocate Mm -hmm. and go to law school and i think about this all the time because this is something had i not had this experience i would take for granted right now i could afford to relocate like first and last fine at that time i That was absolutely not on the table. So much money. Yeah. It was not on the table in any way. I did not have money for first and last. I didn't even have money for a moving truck. And it was all people in my community who cared. And a lot of people from the legal community in Western Mass. And by the way, where were you? Were you already working somewhere at this? Yeah, I was working part-time at a few different, I worked for nonprofits that did anti-foreclosure work. And we worked with a lot of attorneys doing limited appearance representation where we'd refer that. And this was in the aftermath of the foreclosure crisis, which hit Springfield, Massachusetts, really, really bad. And through that work, which was an excellent introduction to litigation and excellent work in terms of really helping people, but also very beneficial for me, for someone who didn't really know any attorneys because I had so many attorneys and we worked together and it was like baptism by fire. We were in court. Every Thursday was eviction day, wedding and trying to draft documents in the little, they would use the jury room became like the de facto, like legal assistance room. And I would also know like the standard to get free legal aid. You have to be so unbelievably poor. So we'd have a lot of people who like could never afford an attorney, but they'd be over that threshold. So then you have to figure out, you have to know that from the jump and get them with the right person, or you could help someone do pro se discovery requests because someone made a great form where they basically just have to check things off. But sort of like very intense work, got to meet a lot of really incredible attorneys and I'm guessing, meanwhile, they know you want to go to law school. Yes. They maybe know you've applied to law school. Maybe they they knew what the plan was supposed to be, life changed. 
And I believe when we talked before, you said at some point it was like, yeah, I've applied and I want to go, but I can't possibly. I was getting acceptance letters and I had no way of going. And an attorney named, because I think she deserves props, Madeline Weaver Blanchett, who is a family attorney. I think she does criminal law as well. She sent me a message and was like, you just got to do a GoFundMe type thing and I will donate. You know, I will pester everyone I know to donate because we are going to be so upset if you work this hard. Like, we can't let this happen. Right. She's like, you're going. We're figuring this out. You're going. We're going to figure it out. And and people shared it. And the legal community really put their money where their mouth was. And people that I didn't even know made donations that were someone I didn't know at all made a $2,000 donation because they read the story and they just said, this is ridiculous. And I, and I try and hopefully pay that forward to someone else in my life because that level of just, it's breathtaking. Like to think that someone said, we cannot let this yes. be the end of the story here. And then it wasn't. And by the way, just to pause for a moment to give everyone else some context. So we spoke for the first time, maybe like two, three months ago. I'm doing attorney outreach. I'm new to the firm. I want to check in on the lawyers. I have this whole idea I considered doing a podcast for the firm maybe. And then I talked to Marcella and you share a bit of your story. And I'm just like, oh, I'm doing a podcast for the firm. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, because we tend to think there's like this prototypical path to law school. There's a prototypical lawyer. And also that associates are all cut of the same cloth. It's this type of person. Partners are all that type of person. Yes. And I'm so focused on exploring the individual stories. And then for you, that is such an incredible story because after, I mean, at this point, we're probably at the six to eight year mark, if not longer of, like you said, I knew this was my goal. There's a lot of impediments in the way. I'm literally getting acceptance letters <laughs> and it hits that like back to the, you've identified it as I, I need to rely on myself, but you've hit the point where like, I've done that all that I can do and I'm so close. And then so for others and the community that you've been working with to support you, I just find I won't tear up. We will keep going. But it's really <laughs> such a profound story. And then I know you mentioned, so you're able to go, you know, you have first and last month, you're able to go to New York because you've been accepted to Fordham, but you still had the childcare issue. I mean, everything. I can't even, it's all by a shoestring. It's all by the skin mm -hmm. of my teeth. It's like every moment for even getting the apartment denied and denied. And then at the, literally, it was the second week into orientation, my friend says, a friend from undergrad, my mom wants to co-sign for your apartment. And I moved into the apartment without ever visiting it. And it was a broker who just went above and beyond. And, and he had been an attorney too. And he became, you know, he was just like, he was an angel. She was an angel to get this into this apartment. It's like, I did the first week of law school couch surfing with a girl I found on the accepted students page on Facebook. And your kids at this point, you said, are they three and five? Now they're three and six. And so, okay, you're couch surfing first week of law school. Are the, did you find childcare for them by that point or how did that work? A friend of mine watched them for the week for me to do orientation. And mind you, this was, I mean, I can't even believe how stressful this is, but I gave my notice to my apartment and I had nowhere else to go. So I was mm -hmm. like, we're like running up to a cliff. I'm packing up my stuff and I don't know where I'm taking it. Right. Leap and the net will appear, I guess. <laughs> That's 
Well, that's exactly what it is. It's like, all right, well, it's so anxiety provoking that the chemicals burn off after a little bit. <laughs> You're just like, keep going. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. So we get this apartment, we move there. And I heard that New York had just implemented uh, universal pre-K. And I, had no, I don't know how to register my kid. I mean, in New York, it's crazy. It's not like anywhere I live where you just... It's a huge city. Yeah. How does that work? It's a huge bureaucracy to navigate for any little thing. And I run into a neighbor outside and I'm like, how do you register your kids for school? Because I see she has kids and she's like, oh, I was going to do that tomorrow. Let's go together. You know, it's like all these people you just come across so randomly. She was this woman in this Jewish Orthodox community who was exiled because she got divorced because she had breast cancer and her husband left her. So she's there with these kids. She just moved to the neighborhood. She's registering her kids. I happen to run into her and we just start talking for whatever reason. So we go there together the next day to register kids. And Valencia, my daughter who was three at the time, gets literally the last slot for the universal pre-K. And it was just like, you know, I don't know whatever. I just feel very lucky. But also just the the marathon. So for for many people, law school is the hardest part. And you've really detailed so many things in and of themselves that just to get the opportunity to go to law school, that you still had to finish do three years of law school after all that we've walked through. But in some ways, I could imagine that law school itself is a lot easier in context with you know, everything you you had dealt with, figured out over the years prior. Yeah. I mean, in a way, I think it is in a way. And in a way you're also, you can give yourself these pep talks, right? Mm -hmm. In which I did all the time, in which I, you know, shamelessly solicited from other people. And they would say, have you ever let yourself down before? Have you ever not come through? Because I need a fact-based argument. Don't give me any woo-woo. You got this, girl. That doesn't mean anything at all to me. Tell me something that I can hold. And that's what I would hold on to. But law school was also, I didn't like it. I didn't enjoy the experience of being there. And I had a lot of really dark times because Mm -hmm. I really wanted to be at the very top of my class. And it seemed like no matter what I did, I couldn't be. And it was like, you know, every time I got a B plus, it was like a lashing. I mean, it just, Mm -hmm. my ego was so just shredded. And also law school is so different. I loved undergrad. I loved debating. It was very different. I loved getting to know my professors and, you know, having coffee with them. And and law school was so different. Yes. And you're also holding yourself up to incredibly high standards, as which is great. But as you said, like... My goal is the top, not near the top, like the top. Yes. So then I feel perpetually disappointed in myself the entire time I'm there. But actually I was talking to my aunt about this because my grandfather can be like really pretentious and he's really status obsessed. And he was like disappointed. I didn't get into a Harvard law school or something. And I was really offended by that because I know how hard it took to get where I got anyway. Mm-hmm. Get where you got. Yes. And my aunt said, but if you look at it in the other side, he thinks you're capable of that. So then I say to my internal tyrant, who's just the most relentless devilish 
entity you could think of. My internal tyrant is ruthless, but she always believes I can do it. So Mm -hmm. that is something to hold on to too. There's some part of me that believes I can reach that limit. That's the same part that beats me up when I don't, but. Yes. Well, and it's also kind of forgiving that part and valuing it for what it is. So yes. Yes. And by the way, if you don't mind, we're going to go a little bit longer than some of the other podcasts because I still have a few other things. Okay. Sure. I will say spoiler alert. I've heard you still did pretty well at Fordham. Yeah, no, I, I did. I did. Well, here's another spoiler alert. You you kind of have to to end up at Foley. So <laughs> that's like rumor has it. Yeah, no, I did. But I will say I do hear you when you say, and you know, unfortunately, we can't go through each each of the three years there. That it wasn't easy. No, it still wasn't easy. It wasn't like oh, you know, fast forward through the next three years. There was still a lot of work, and I can only imagine navigating law school with a three and a five year old. Because law school is hard regardless, let alone when there's, you know, children that have to be cared for, fed, given attention to every day, apparently. They grew up on that campus. I mean. Yeah, they went with mom where they needed to go. (laughs) All the free pizzas in the basement that would get brought to the public interest. I mean, they were living off those pizzas. Uh, They were going to cocktail parties. And they had to. They did. And so. Uh, you know, I felt bad because I didn't always get to give them the attention that I wanted. But I was like, look, I could be a waitress at Denny's and never see you. So yep, let's get the work done to get. Yes. So when does Foley and Lardner come on the scene? How do you hear about Foley? So I'm really gung ho about being public interest. Uh, and I did an internship at the SEC and the FTC. And I started to think maybe government regulation or enforcement you know, regarding financial stuff and consumer protection stuff is the way that I can make a good living and really promote public interest in my career. That's where I'm going in my mind. And then at the time, it looks like Trump wins the election also. So all these government jobs are really not... Right, not as appealing. Yeah. So I'm trying to figure this out. And I have a mentor at Fordham and he's a public interest guy too. And we're having one of our breakfasts and he, he's like, you know, I hate to do this, but, and I know I'm your, you know, I'm your public interest advisor, but OCI is coming up and I want you to bid. He's like, you should just consider it. Just go try OCI out. And for others who aren't familiar, that's on-campus interview for any non-lawyers who listen to this. Yes. The opportunity to be law firms. So that's where the big law firms are going to recruit at OCI. If you go the public interest route, public interest places typically don't have the money to even hire you until after you graduate and pass the bar. So basically the deal is, you know, if you get hired through OCI, through a firm, you'd summer there. I mean, obviously I know you know this, but I figure since you point yeah, that out, absolutely. you summer there, you make pro rata salaries. So you get a taste of, you know, what it would be like financially and work-wise as well. And they typically give you an offer. So, you know, right out of law school, you got a, a place to go. And they'll also help with bar expenses, et cetera. Right. He's like, what's the downside? Go try. Right. So he's saying, look, you can get in now. Your grades are good enough. You can get in now. But if you don't take the opportunity now, there is absolutely no guarantee you will ever get it again. He said, if you hate it, you can quit. If you only want to stay there for two years and just pay down some debt, 
fine, pay down some debt. And guess what? You're going to be better situated and trained to go anywhere you want to go in public interest wise. And also I knew from interning at the SEC, which I, I absolutely loved and in enforcement division, it was so fun. And I had a great supervisor there and he said, look, we don't hire out of law school. So right. <laughs> like, don't get don't your own experience, please. Yeah. Yes. And that was what they did. They'd say, go out, you know, get your experience and come back. So my public interest mentor was basically saying, you have to take this opportunity, just try it out. And turns out that he knew one of our partners, Doug Heffer, who had been his student. So he gave Doug a like heads up, you know, watch out for this one or whatever. And I had uh, just a great interview with Doug for my OCI interviews. I mean, you just do marathon after marathon. Yes. So many meetings, so many meetings. And, And also funny story. I remember I needed an outfit for OCI. It's like these stories. I swear by the skin of my teeth over and over. So I didn't have any decent suits that fit well then. And I just went to like store after store until one store was foolish enough to give me like a store credit card. And then I just bought some for it. This is a real concern though. I had that same thing. I was like, what does one wear to a law firm interview? Like if you have not been in that world, you don't just have like a closet full of suits for interviews. It's not how that works. Exactly. And, And you know, in my public interest internships, that's a different wardrobe, right? Mm-hmm. And you can dress kind of business cash and that's fine, but I really needed a good suit. And I remember it was just so hot and sweaty and the suits would just stink. And then you're like, but I can't really afford dry cleaning. You're just like, nope, just gotta keep them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let them dry out in the bathtub, put the suit on again. Oh my gosh. But so, and I'm going to fast forward a bit. Yeah, sure. More, but you connect with Folate OCI. You're a summer associate with us in New York. You join the firm, and based on everything you've ever said, I'm not surprised you settle on litigation. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There was never any other thing. Yeah, for you, there's no, but I still have to say it out loud that I was like, clearly you become a litigator. Yes. And now as a litigator, what are the type of matters that you've been able to work on in your first few years with the firm? Well, in terms of, Uh, the types of cases, there are a lot of, well, I've done some trademark stuff, which I I surprisingly like that. I never would have guessed that soft IP. And and I like that term. So like, I don't know anything about a patent, but you want to argue about the use of a color. We can do that all day. Let's do it. (laughs) We can do that. So those are fun. And a lot of business disputes, which it turns out businesses are disputing everything all of the time among each other. I've done a lot of work for insurance brokers, clients who are insurance brokers. I did that as well in a former life. I can relate to that. Yeah. And they're fun, you know, they're fun cases. Well, we're going to wrap up, but I want to give you a moment to reflect because in addition to Hopefully lots of people from Foley and Lardner are listening to this podcast to learn more about the attorneys at the firm. I'm also hoping law students or college students or anyone who's interested in pursuing the legal path listens. So I'm not sure if it's easiest to frame this as advice to your 17-year-old self, you know, knowing the very long road she had ahead, or for anybody who looks and is like, I could never, like, how could I possibly become a lawyer or go to law school? What are your, you know, some tips or some wisdom to share well, first off, I would direct my, if I was going to make a message, I would, I would direct it to the, the people who have really struggled 
and navigated a lot of BS bureaucracies and been pushed down over and over. And what I would say to those people, many, like many of my friends back home, is you don't even know how competent you are. If you can walk through these obstacles every day, then you are so competent. The spirit of a litigator, the spirit of advocacy, I didn't learn that in law school, nor do I think I could or would have. I didn't learn that in undergrad either. I learned that through my life and having to always go to war for myself and for my kids. So I would say to, you know, especially to the single moms or moms who are trying to go back to school who have to deal with all this constant BS, making sure you have enough credits to get the childcare voucher to get that you can't earn a penny over this or they shut off that. You are so highly competent. You have executive functioning skills that CEOs of Fortune 500 companies wish they had. You have endurance that they wish they had and you already have it. And all you have to do is put one foot in front of the other and keep your blinders on. That's what I would say. Thank you so much. I don't litigate anymore, but I used to, and I learned to know when to stop. So that is a great (laughs) note for us to end on. The only other thing I'll add is if people want to reach out, how can they find you? They can find me at my Foley email, mjayne at foley.com. Thank you so much, Marcella. I would not be surprised if people demand a part two with you, but for now, this is not that's all we've got. Thank you so much for inviting me. Of course, appreciate it. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley and Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. 